Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright, and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff, a new audio feature and podcast that showcases our best long-form writing and lifts the veil a little to tell you how these stories came about. This week's feature is called Plan B and the Infodemic by Stuff National Correspondent Charlie Mitchell, who joins me now. Hi, Charlie. Hi. Plan B and the Infodemic. Those are some new words. What's this about? So this is primarily about a, a man named Dr. Simon Thornley, who is a, an epidemiologist at the University of Auckland, and he is the founder of a group called Plan B, which some people may recognise as a group of academics who opposed New Zealand's COVID-19 strategy. And essentially what they argued is that New Zealand was on a path that would ultimately be disastrous in the long run. Uh, and they proposed a different strategy in which we essentially let the virus spread in New Zealand whilst uh, protecting the elderly and, and other groups who are vulnerable to COVID-19. Plan B, some listeners might recognise that term, that the group has been discredited or criticised by lots of other public health figures. Why, why did you decide to write about them? It really uh, struck me as an interesting question for the, um, for the way we do science in, in in a public health emergency like we're, we're facing at the moment. Simon Thornley in particular has ideas that are not accepted really within most of the public health community in New Zealand, uh, but he's continued to make them in ways that has caused consternation to some of his colleagues, uh, particularly at the University of Auckland. It's really an interesting issue because he is essentially the only person within his profession who has made this argument. And it, it sort of raises these interesting questions about scientific debate because he feels like his views have been censored or not listened to, uh, whereas his opponents or his critics say that really what he's arguing is, is sort of beyond debate and is not rational or reflecting the best scientific evidence. So there's this quite interesting issue about how to deal with ideas that are unpopular or are unseemly in, in science, and particularly at a time when misinformation is flourishing online and, and people are being driven towards views that sort of confirm their preconceptions. Thank you, Charlie. Now, here is me reading Charlie's story, Plan B and the Infodemic. Two months before residents of Wuhan, China, began succumbing to a mysterious coronavirus, Dr Simon Thornley was thinking about scabies. In his own words, Thornley was a scabies enthusiast. The infectious skin disease had become his major area of research, prompting his appearance as a featured speaker at a scabies conference in September 2019. In his presentation, he outlined his belief that scabies was linked to rheumatic fever, a serious disease that, in New Zealand, almost exclusively affects Māori and Pacific children. His work was praised by the next speaker, Professor Michael Baker, a prominent public health expert and epidemiologist at the University of Otago. Simon Thornley's work has really put this on the map, Baker said during his presentation. Just over a year later, Thornley and Baker appeared together again. It was New Year's Eve and the venue was talkback radio station Magic Talk. A planned interview with Thornley had become an impromptu debate, with Baker asked to provide a response to Thornley's arguments. Over the course of 2020, 
Thornley had become the most prominent sceptic of the New Zealand government's COVID-19 elimination strategy. It happened largely by default. He was the only known academic within his specialty to publicly disagree with it. Baker had been one of the strategy's chief architects, backed by the overwhelming majority of public health experts. The two men had traded jabs over the pandemic's course. It started off politely, but had become more heated as their views diverged further. A week before the debate, Thornley and other academics, known together as Plan B, a group proposing an alternative method for handling the pandemic, had published a letter in the British Medical Journal outlining their position against the country's elimination strategy. The letter contained several dubious arguments, prompting Baker to publicly describe it as almost scandalous and patently absurd, a piece both poorly argued and reliant on cherry-picked evidence. The animosity between the two continued on air during the debate. It is shameful that some people have denigrated our efforts, Thornley said, obliquely referring to Baker and other public health experts, many of whom had been critical of Plan B. They're trying to shut down alternative views which have already been proven correct. Baker, for his part, was baffled. Over Christmas, New Zealanders had been free to gather with their families, go to the beach and pack malls on Boxing Day. While much of the world remained in the grip of COVID-19, New Zealanders could spend their holidays going to music festivals and sports events. Data showed New Zealand had among the least stringent restriction measures in the world with a surprisingly resilient economic outlook. The likes of Sweden, long celebrated by Thornley as a beacon of freedom, was in the grip of a second spike of deaths, prompting severe movement and gathering restrictions which remained in place for months. I guess the question I have for Simon, Baker said, is, at this point in time, how could he look at the same data as we do and come to a diametrically opposite view? Others in the field had been asking that question too. As New Zealand's COVID-19 response became the envy of the world, Thornley said it was a failure. He retreated into Baroque theories about the origin of the coronavirus and the efficacy of vaccines, becoming a magnet for conspiracy theorists and fringe political figures. Baker and others became fixtures in the mainstream media and were showered with formal and informal accolades. Thornley was mostly exiled by the press and disregarded by his colleagues. This hasn't dissuaded Thornley and Plan B. Thornley is an expert witness for a legal challenge against the vaccine rollouts mounted by Nelson lawyer Sue Gray, a figurehead of the New Zealand anti-vaccine movement. Thornley himself warns against most people getting the vaccine, a position several scientists say is extraordinary for a public health expert during a global pandemic. It reflects a shift in Plan B and Thornley's priorities, most evident in the group's Facebook page, which has become a vector for misinformation and a favoured hangout for conspiracy theorists. Recent comments include personal attacks on New Zealand scientists, claiming they're corrupt and will be convicted of crimes against humanity. Others have said vaccines are being used to control the population, that COVID-19 itself is a hoax, and that the fundamental aim of the pandemic is to establish a global communist state. 
It is proving uncomfortable for Thornley's peers, some of whom have both publicly and privately rebuked him for what they say is unscientific conduct and a pattern of cherry-picking evidence to support his position. Thornley levels similar charges against his opponents. Researchers at the University of Auckland studying misinformation and disinformation have included Plan B's work in their analyses, tracking the group's informal links to anti-vaccination groups. Several academics told Stuff they believed Thornley's career and credibility had been dealt a major blow due to his activism. Nevertheless, Thornley remains convinced the public health establishment has got it wrong and that New Zealand should change course. In the midst of a -a once-in-a-generation public health crisis and a related misinformation crisis, it poses a problem. What happens when one subject matter expert takes a contrarian position and emboldens online groups who are increasingly convinced everyone around them is wrong? New Zealand descends into another lockdown abyss, just as I am now questioning the very foundations of the COVID story. It was February 2021, and Simon Thornley had embraced a sweeping new theory, which he outlined in a blog post. He believed COVID-19 was circulating before Wuhan. It may have been spreading in Europe as early as March 2019. If true, it would mean the disease was not particularly deadly. For nine months, it had circulated unnoticed, without lockdowns or any other restrictions. Life had continued as usual. It looks increasingly as if COVID-19 is a kind of chimera, Thornley concluded in his post, largely created by our own modern fears. Since he had first written about COVID-19 nearly a year earlier, Thornley had come to embrace idiosyncratic theories, some of which were not only at odds with the bulk of the scientific evidence, but with basic epidemiology. When a new virus emerges, it spreads rapidly across the available population until the chain of transmission is severed. In Thornley's hypothesis, the virus appeared, had no noticeable impact, then later, millions of people started dying. In an online presentation around the same time, Thornley offered evidence for his hypothesis in the form of two scientific papers. One has not been peer-reviewed or published in a journal. The other was published in a small Italian journal, which has since added an expression of concern about the peer review. Experts have raised methodological problems with each paper. It remains possible the virus emerged before Wuhan, but a finding in Europe many months earlier would dramatically change our understanding of the virus. Despite the meagre evidence, Thornley was convinced of this hypothesis. What do I believe? My money is that it was around before Wuhan, he said during his presentation. It leads you to think, if this virus was really around, would we have noticed? All these dramatic policies which have really centred around the idea the virus is new in Wuhan, does that make sense in the light of this data where it's been freely circulating in 2019 without any restrictions? It was the logical endpoint of Thornley's most enduring view, that the deadliness of COVID-19 had been systematically exaggerated, both in the media and the scientific community. Thornley's hypothesis doesn't end there. 
if the virus is not particularly deadly. An explanation is required for the 3.3 million deaths sustained thus far. Thornley argues the response to the virus, including lockdowns and medical interventions such as mechanical ventilation, are largely responsible for the death toll. It's an odd theory, not seriously argued by many public health experts. It's bizarre. I mean, it's nonsense, said Professor Rod Jackson, one of the country's most senior epidemiologists and Thornley's colleague at the University of Auckland. In countries like Italy, France, Spain, the UK and the US, Jackson said, where you'd expect them to have reasonable health infrastructure, they were overwhelmed. COVID-19 presented over a matter of weeks in Wuhan. In Italy, within a few weeks, their health services were overwhelmed. Their intensive care units were overflowing. At the end of his presentation, a slide notes many of Thornley's references came from one place a blog post purporting to describe the, quote, manufacturing of the coronavirus crisis, written by an architect in the United Kingdom who has no apparent medical or science expertise. During a question-and-answer session, Thornley was asked if his hypothesis meant COVID-19 had been in New Zealand prior to its first detection. It's very hard to believe we haven't been exposed to the virus in quite a dramatic way, he responded. Only a seroprevalence survey, which measures the proportion of people with antibodies for the virus, would give the answer, he said. Two months later, a seroprevalence survey was released. It determined only around 0.1% of New Zealand had been infected with COVID-19. The finding provides robust evidence to support New Zealand's successful elimination strategy for COVID-19. Thornley, however, remains unconvinced. Dr. Simon Thornley is the archetypal academic. He speaks in a slow, dry manner, usually pausing or sighing before answering a question. His conversational tone is polite and considered, his responses usually peppered with references to academic papers. It's a stark contrast to the community Plan B has cultivated online, rife with wild conspiracy theories and personal attacks on scientists. Nearly any given post on Plan B's Facebook page is flooded with such comments, describing a fraudulent pandemic led by figures such as Bill Gates and corrupt politicians and scientists. It speaks to the contradiction at the heart of Plan B, a group of academics claiming to be driven by science and reason, producing content for an audience that feverishly embraces conspiracy theories and is generally hostile to scientists. Even if Thornley doesn't subscribe to his audience's beliefs, they see him as an ally. He does little to disabuse them of that notion. For much of his career, Thornley's primary topic of expertise has been nutrition. His publishing record mostly comprises papers on vaping, cycling and sugar consumption. Some critics have questioned Thornley's credentials, but they are conventional by most measures. He's a trained epidemiologist who has worked as a public health physician and modelled infectious disease spread for the Auckland DHB, including during past epidemics. As a lecturer at the University of Auckland, he coordinates a postgraduate course for using the best evidence to inform healthcare decisions. 
His academic qualifications are broadly similar to those of Dr Ashley Bloomfield, another Auckland University graduate who became a public health doctor specialising in non-communicable diseases. Before COVID-19, his sole animating issue, at least in public, had been sugar. He is a vocal advocate for a sugar tax, a member of the FIS group of researchers and doctors which advocates for such measures. He speaks at conferences, outlining his views that sugar consumption is linked to other health conditions. In one paper, he argued one condition linked to sugar was rheumatic fever, a claim that proved controversial in the field. In his own life, Thornley started a ketogenic diet, which he has said helped him lose weight. He went to the dentist less often. He was celebrated by other anti-sugar public figures, including Claire Deeks, a corporate lawyer-turned-activist who has since co-founded the anti-vaccination group Voices for Freedom. It was very similar to the response I've had with my COVID work, Thornley says to Stuff in an interview. I was rubbished. I was laughed at. My job was threatened. Slowly, slowly, it became acceptable to talk about the health impacts of sugar. Some academics in the field, however, believe some of Thornley's views on sugar were absolutist and did not reflect the bulk of the published evidence. Two people who know Thornley say that once he takes a position on something, he becomes immovable, a personality trait that might explain his actions during the pandemic. Thornley himself acknowledges Plan B's argument remains basically unchanged since it started more than a year ago. That argument has continued to puzzle his colleagues and has led Thornley to become increasingly isolated within the public health community. At one point, staff within his department at the university were asked to present their thoughts on the pandemic. Thornley ran through the arguments he had been developing, that COVID-19 was not particularly deadly and that there was little evidential basis for lockdowns. He did not convince any of his colleagues, who were clearly not impressed. Online critics frequently demand he be fired or censured by his employer. One senior academic at the institution complained to Thornley's supervisor about public comments he had made about another scientist. It is almost certain Thornley's career in public health has been damaged, potentially beyond repair. I knew this was going to be very costly to me in terms of my career, Thornley says, in terms of my standing within the public health community. There was very little for me to gain in making the stand. In the days before the Level 4 lockdown, public health experts had started calling for drastic action. The charge was led by Michael Baker and his University of Otago colleague, Professor Nick Wilson. Days before the lockdown was announced, the pair had argued for a short period of, quote, intense social distancing until testing and contact tracing capacity could be bolstered. They had seen early success in China, Taiwan and South Korea with such a strategy. The virus could be contained, preventing the need for prolonged lockdowns. Thornley was leaning another way. He had been following the writings of John Iwanidis, a prominent epidemiologist at Stanford University, best known for his belief that most published research findings are false. Iwanidis had been an early critic of lockdowns. He wrote several articles questioning the evidential basis underlying the response to the pandemic, 
claiming decisions were being made on the basis of flimsy evidence. The piece reflected a common debate in public health. How much evidence is required before taking measures to protect public health, particularly when the consequences of acting too late can be disastrous? Thornley was inspired and started writing. In his first opinion piece, published on Stuff, he likened the government's level 4 restrictions to squashing a flea with a sledgehammer, proposing Sweden's more laissez-faire approach as a more sensible course. When that piece was published, the global COVID-19 death toll was around 40,000. In the tumultuous years since, things changed dramatically. The global death toll has since increased 8,000-fold to more than 3.3 million. In Sweden, more than a million people have been infected, causing nearly 15,000 deaths, a per capita death rate nearly 300 times higher than New Zealand. Sweden's annual GDP loss was the same as New Zealand's, but its unemployment rate is nearly twice as high. For 49 of the last 52 weeks, Sweden has had more severe social restrictions than New Zealand, according to the Oxford Government Stringency Index. Both the King of Sweden and the Swedish Prime Minister have said the high number of deaths constituted a failure. Thornley's view on the severity of the virus and the wisdom of New Zealand's strategy relative to Sweden's has not changed. The response in New Zealand has had worse effects than the virus would have, Thornley says. There's no doubt in my mind the effects of the virus have been systematically exaggerated at every level. He points to lines at food banks and deferred surgeries, families separated by border closures and problems getting workers in agriculture. He acknowledges a counterfactual in which the virus spread rapidly through the country unabated would have effects too, but doesn't attempt to quantify them. Asked about Sweden, he says he still believes Sweden's approach was better than New Zealand's, but cautioned against making direct comparisons between countries. I think there's a million different ways you can make comparisons, he says. One of the things that I've noticed is that countrywide comparisons can take on a nationalistic flavour, where we think of ourselves as having defeated the virus, like we've won the Rugby World Cup or something. To me, this is fool's gold. We need to have a realistic assessment of the threat of the virus by looking at the cold, hard statistics, such as the median age of fatality from a virus, and seeing that it's about the same age as life expectancy. The argument he outlined in March 2020 convinced five academics to join Thornley as Plan B, a group proposing a different approach to managing COVID-19. The group was launched with the help of Mark Blackham, a corporate lobbyist. Blackham was a press secretary to former Prime Minister Mike Moore and ran the Labour Party's media unit. He has become a PR specialist for sometimes unpopular causes. His company has lobbied for the greyhound racing industry, the alcohol industry and the oil and gas industry. In 2018, Stuff reported that Blackham was behind a seemingly grassroots campaign that sought to downplay concerns about fresh water quality. The heart of Plan B's argument was, quote, focused protection for those most vulnerable to COVID-19. 
much of society would return to normality, allowing the virus to spread whilst the elderly and people with underlying health conditions would receive additional protection. The theory relies on herd immunity developing naturally and quickly in the bulk of the population, with little if any interaction possible between the protected group and wider society. Thornley notes such measures would be voluntary. Plan B received considerable media coverage, including a front-page story in the Dominion Post, which is owned by Stuff. Thornley, as leader of the group, made several appearances on talkback radio stations News Talk ZB and Magic Talk, and was interviewed by mainstream TV news outlets. He was quoted in Time magazine and the New York Times as a critic of the government's strategy. It didn't last long. Less than two weeks after the group formed, the country returned to Level 3, shifting to Level 2 two weeks later. There was no immediate re-emergence of community transmission. The debate was shut down effectively, I felt, Thornley says. Some of his critics say there was a debate. Thornley and Plan B lost. After lockdown restrictions ended, New Zealand went 100 days without community transmission and life for many people returned to near normality. Thornley's argument that, quote, we'd be better off seeking herd immunity and protecting the frail and the elderly, as he described it in August 2020, had little public traction. On the day that Stuff speaks to Thornley, stories of devastation are coming out of India. Images show bodies burning along the Ganges River, unable to fit in overflowing crematoriums. Video broadcast on Indian television show people storming a hospital after relatives died inside due to oxygen shortages. A few months earlier, Plan B's Facebook page had commented favourably on India's response. India's COVID-19 cases have dropped like a stone, the group wrote. It's not been able to install social restrictions, and its vaccine programme hasn't even started yet. This will be a counter to other governments that will claim the only reason cases go down is due to vaccine rollouts. The timing was unfortunate. Within a week, India's daily COVID-19 cases began its upward trajectory, culminating in the worst outbreak anywhere in the world since the pandemic began. While the severity of India's outbreak caught many public health experts by surprise, It happened amid the rise of more virulent strains, lifting of public health restrictions and a faltering vaccine rollout, a combination of factors consistent with previous outbreaks. There have been numerous horror stories over the course of the pandemic. Bodies piled into refrigerated trucks in New York, overcrowding in Brazilian hospitals, waves of death in Sweden's nursing homes. They are an obvious counterpoint to Thornley's view the virus is no worse than a nasty seasonal flu. I've been accused of cherry-picking data during this and not looking at the disaster stuff, he says. I find it hard to trust, at face value, stories of devastation in parts of the world. That this is simply COVID. All this devastation is attributable to COVID. It's simply not that clear. Asked if he thought the scenes of crisis reflected normal seasonal circumstances in India, Thornley demurred. I would need to look at the statistics, need to see the data, talk to people on the ground there to get a good idea of what's going on. For his colleagues in public health, 
Thornley's steadfast and consistent belief the virus is no worse than a seasonal flu is particularly confounding. The post-lockdown media blackout pulled Thornley into new territory. He gave interviews to fringe YouTubers with double-digit subscriber counts and weekly webinars for a small but passionate group of Plan B supporters. Whilst his colleagues were regularly featured in the global media lauding New Zealand's relative success, Thornley was part of a different network. He was interviewed by a self-proclaimed anarchist and life coach who railed against climate alarmism, a Canadian nutritionist who has claimed he can cure COVID-19 with a juice-based diet, and a group which later tried to hold a public event featuring a speaker who claims she was brainwashed by a satanic global elite into becoming an international assassin. Whilst the government was re-elected in a landslide, in large part due to the success of a strategy led by Thornley's colleagues, Thornley himself was praised and cited by unsuccessful fringe political figures, such as Billy Takahika, Elliot Ikile and Advance NZ. Although he gives little ground to his opponents, even Thornley acknowledged the bind he was in. I have to admit, he said in a webinar in August 2020, I didn't think they would be as successful as they have been, historically, with the 100 days COVID-free in New Zealand. It was a potential turning point, but instead of walking back, Thornley and Plan B dug deeper, further into the fringes. Just a few days later, Thornley tweeted from an Auckland event protesting Level 3 restrictions, which had been attended by conspiracy theorists including Jamie Lee Ross. In October, Plan B released an open letter signed by 13 registered health practitioners who felt, quote, obliged by their professional ethics to express support for the principles of Plan B. The group reflected a tiny fraction of the many thousands of health professionals in New Zealand. Most of the signatories have endorsed or actively practice alternative medicine. Since December 2020, Plan B and Thornley have drawn criticism for associating with the anti-vaccination group Voices for Freedom, or VFF. The group's founders, including Claire Deeks, were invited onto a Plan B webinar in December 2020, in which Deeks praised Thornley as, quote, a great friend to the movement and talked about encouraging people to disobey public health measures. If we can just get the people who already know there's an issue to stop wearing masks, she said, to stop using hand sanitizer and to stop social distancing and abiding completely by the lockdown the next time if we have one, that's a big win. Plan B and VFF discussed coordinating events, including activist workshops during a Plan B symposium. It didn't happen. Thornley was interviewed by the group and was a keynote speaker at a public event it held in March 2021. Other speakers at the event included a German man comparing life in New Zealand to East Germany and an anti-vaccination activist who touts the fact her unvaccinated children caught measles during the 2019 outbreak in Auckland. Plan B's growing stature in fringe online groups has brought it to the attention of misinformation and disinformation researchers, including researchers at the University of Auckland, 
where Thornley and two other Plan B members work. Kate Hanna leads the Disinformation Project, which investigates the, quote, infodemic, the rise in misinformation and disinformation that has flourished alongside the COVID-19 pandemic. While it analyses material from the likes of VFF and Advance NZ, the group has also examined Plan B and its informal links to such groups. The level of relationship between Plan B and those groups in terms of direct connections is hard to ascertain, Hannah says. But there definitely seem to be mutual ideologies and a shared acceptance that it's useful to share these ideas throughout broader public spaces. Much of this was happening online, particularly on Facebook and other algorithm-driven platforms that push users towards content within linked groups. Plan B itself has been asked to disavow VFF. In an open letter signed by dozens of academics and medical experts, the signatories called on Plan B to reject conspiracy theories and stop associating with VFF. Thornley responded with a statement saying the group rejected conspiracy theories but would not commit to distancing the group from VFF. Among the signatories was Thornley's colleague, Professor Des Gorman, a critic of the government's response, who at the time said he was concerned about Plan B's communications. We should never stifle academic debate, he said. But when academics are promoting misinformation that may create public harm, we have to stand up and say, sorry, you've crossed a line. As Plan B's links to such groups have hardened, comments on its Facebook page have become more extreme. Most comments on the page are unmoderated, Thornley says, because we believe in free speech. Opinions expressed on the Facebook page are real and sometimes disconcerting, he says, but they don't go away by suppressing them. Indeed, we have watched them intensify in response to the censorious instincts of the establishment that has shut down so much debate. Stuff has heard from people saying comments of theirs that are pro-vaccination or critical of Plan B have been removed. Thornley says such comments are deleted if they abuse people in the group or are from, quote, pro-COVID strategy people not intending to be fair-minded. What makes Plan B distinct among such groups is that it comprises academics, which bolsters its standing in online communities. I think that the associations that have been allowed to happen between Plan B, Kate Hanna says, with academics as part of the team, and groups which are trying to undermine New Zealand's highly successful COVID-19 response has given those groups a sense of intellectual and epistemic authority, which is really, really disappointing. It was a dreary Wednesday in Wellington, but the atmosphere was festival-like at the High Court. Anti-vaccine activists adorned the footpath outside, waving branded signs from Voices for Freedom. Conspiracy theorist Billy Takahika, broadcasting live from inside the court, was removed by security. The courtroom quickly filled out as people queued to get inside. Some in the public gallery applauded as lawyer Sue Gray made her argument against the rollout of the vaccines. Simon Thornley, the only public health expert serving as a witness for Gray's case, was there too. The vaccine has become the motivating issue for Thornley and Plan B. Despite not being an expert on vaccines, which Thornley himself has admitted, he contributed a written affidavit to Gray's legal bid to stop the rollout. 
the move towards scepticism about the vaccine has raised particular concern among Thornley's colleagues in public health and academics more broadly. Some see it as a step too far. He seems to be rejecting this huge weight of scientific evidence in favour of vaccines, Michael Baker says. There are numerous papers in high-quality journals for all the vaccines that have been trialled. There's consistently high effectiveness against symptomatic illness, particularly severe illness and death. Then there's observational data coming from countries that have rolled out vaccines, showing a marked decline in the risk of serious illness and death. I find it very concerning that he can reject all that evidence because it doesn't fit with his strongly held views. Thornley's stance is likely to embolden anti-vaccination groups. Their arguments rarely gain traction in the public health community, where vaccines are seen as a major tool for improving global health. The Pfizer vaccine used in New Zealand has gone through standard clinical trial processes, and COVID-19 vaccines in general have demonstrated effectiveness in highly vaccinated populations, including Israel, the United States and the United Kingdom. Tacit support for anti-vaccination groups by a public health expert was invaluable to their cause, says Dr Alison Campbell, an honorary fellow at the University of Waikato, who blogs about science and misinformation. Epidemiologists are expected to be authorities in areas related to disease spread and measuring impacts of things on public health, Campbell says. So it's understandable that people would see it as having that legitimacy, and probably as sound as most public health experts. If you get support from university academics, particularly science-based academics, that really lends an air of legitimacy to those groups. Asked to defend his stance on vaccines, Thornley told Stuff he was not philosophically opposed to vaccines in general, and believed the COVID-19 vaccine could play a role for the frail and elderly, but believed the principles of, quote, informed consent, were not being respected. I have had chills going down my spine, he says, when I hear on the radio the message, safe and effective, safe and effective. In support of his claim, Thornley cited a spike in reports to the Adverse Events and Reporting System in the US, a self-reporting system anyone can submit to, which requires no causal connection between the vaccine and the event. His main concern, he says, is, quote, informed consent and simplistic messaging from the government. While his motivation might be different from some anti-vaccination activists, his tacit endorsement of the case has further entrenched his position in online communities rife with misinformation. Sue Gray, one of the lawyers arguing the case, has likened mandatory vaccination to rape on her Facebook page and frequently promotes unverified and unsourced rumours associating deaths with the vaccine. Among those claims are links to posts by Voices for Freedom and her expert witness, Simon Thornley of Plan B. Debate is a fundamental part of the scientific method, but it has been complicated during the COVID-19 pandemic. Unlike long-running issues such as climate change, where an overwhelming consensus has emerged over time, the debate over COVID-19 has been truncated due to the urgency of the pandemic. Issues that would typically be litigated in peer-reviewed journals are taking place online or in the news media. 
expert advice shifts as the evidence base grows, making consistent messaging, a vital tool in public health, difficult. To some of his colleagues, Thornley has been sucked into the infodemic in ways that are frustrating and unscientific. Some debate is healthy, Otago University epidemiologist Michael Baker says. But at a certain point, it does need to be connected to evidence that is looked at systematically. And I think that as a scientist, you have an obligation to do that. What's most concerned me about Simon is that he doesn't appear to have changed his viewpoint at any stage about the seriousness of the COVID-19 pandemic or how to respond. Baker has two specific areas of frustration with Thornley his unchanging view on the deadliness of the virus and his downplaying of the need for a vaccine. For people who don't believe in science, Baker says, all bets are off what they might say because it's not about evidence. Simon, his whole professional career is about evidence. Collecting evidence, assembling it to create a picture of what problems are and how to solve them. For him to do those two things, I think, is highly irresponsible. I don't understand why a scientist would do that. It's almost beyond normal scientific ethics to do that. Thornley's colleague at the University of Auckland, Rod Jackson, emphasised how little support there was for Thornley's position. The experienced epidemiologists and public health experts right around the world, almost to a person, supported the New Zealand and Australia approach, he says. Of the two to 300 health professionals in New Zealand who, I would say, have got the training and expertise to comment on COVID, Simon stands alone. He's an extreme outlier. From Thornley's perspective, he is defending an important component of the scientific process which he believes many in his profession have lost sight of during COVID-19. During this process, he's been attacked online, his job threatened, he's been accused of wanting to kill the elderly and being a right-wing extremist. I think COVID has become a sort of moralistic issue that has almost transcended the scientific debate, Thornley says, and kind of become an issue where any questioning of the narrative becomes synonymous with being an evil person. I don't think that is healthy. I think that science, good science, happens when there's a diversity of views. And even if those views are uncomfortable or unwelcome, it's possible to debate and discuss these issues. During their debate in 2020, Michael Baker had asked how he and Simon Thornley could look at the same data and come to different conclusions. Thornley, speaking months later, has a thoughtful response. If you think about science from a Bayesian point of view, he says, there's the idea you have prior ideas or prior beliefs, and then you have data that's thrown in front of you, and so you update your prior beliefs based on that data. If your prior beliefs are very different, then it's likely when you look at this new data, your conclusions are going to be very different from someone else who's formed a different view. Did Thornley's views come about because he has different values to his colleagues, as some of his colleagues argue? He doesn't think so. My concern was for the country, he says, for my children who are going to live in this country. To me, this is not about values. My entire career has been about improving health. That 
That was Plan B and the Infodemic on The Long Read from Stuff. Written by Charlie Mitchell, read and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was mixed by Sam Scannell. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listen via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on The Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.